Hi there, and thanks for downloading and listening to the 4 Million Years Later podcast. This is a show where two old friends get together and talk about the Transformers Generation 1 cartoon series. We watch an episode a week, and then we convene to talk about what we saw. And we explore it from the standpoint of like two people who grew up with the show, never fell out of love with it. And we take a very careful, close look to see how our experience changes and how it stays the same in engaging with this cartoon that we just find endlessly fascinating. My name is Jersey Droz. I'm a cartoonist and teaching artist, and the other host is named... Hoovacus. Oh, he's back! <laughs> it has been so long, I feel like I need to explain this to people. <laughs> in the very early days of this podcast, Hoover always tried to show up and map his name onto the episode's title in some way or another. But, as Hoover very, I think, astutely pointed out a few episodes ago, due to a failure of imagination on the part of the writers, <laughs> they, they neglected to provide us with a bunch of titles midway through season two that adequately adhered themselves to Hoover's name. A lack of forward <laughs> thinking on the writer's part. Yes. They didn't take the time to think about <laughs> that someday in the future someone will be doing a podcast about this show. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, shame on you, Donald F. Glute, for not understanding that podcasting was going to happen in 40 years. <laughs> All right, so, yeah, we talk about an episode a week. What are we talking about this week, Hoover? This week is the Revenge of Bruticus. Mmm. We just met him, and already he wants revenge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Funny what sticking you in a drawer does to you. Yeah, really. Well, this one was by Larry Strauss. And we've seen the name a few times before. He wrote the teleplay to Ultimate Doom Part 1. And he wrote mm -hmm. Blaster Blues. Mm -hmm. And he wrote Triple Takeover. Hmm. Okay. Now, I am the Transformers enthusiast who is saying, Oh my gosh, I gotta go dig up my DVDs so I can watch this ahead of time before I listen to these two gentlemen talk about this cartoon. But there's an easier way than pulling out the DVDs, isn't there? Currently there is. It is on <laughs> Tubi.tv. They have just recently, as of April 1st, apparently removed Robotech and all its many iterations. So mm. that bums me out much. But I checked, and as of today, as of this recording, as they like to say, Transformers is there. So you can see The Revenge of Bruticus in Season 2, and it is Episode 47, almost all the way to the end. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you have to scroll all the way to the end. It's one of the last three. So Season 2, Episode 47 on Tubi.tv. Go watch it. This episode is bananas. There is a ton of banana stuff in this one that, you know, put us on pause. It's okay. We'll still be here. And then go watch it. Come back. And then you can see how your opinion stacks up to ours. And then you can meet us in the Facebook group to talk about your Facebook page. I apologize. I've been reminded a lot recently about how old I'm getting and how much I'm mixing up my nomenclatures with talking about what, what the, the people use on the online. So go to the Facebook page and talk about, you know, how, how you feel about this one after watching it and then hearing us talk about it. So this is the moment of the episode where I do the IMDb cold read. And I saw in the notes over that you wrote some funny retort to the IMDb cold read, but I very, I am, I am ever the good boy. I <laughs> neglected to read it. I scanned over mm. it. Like, okay, who's got something funny to say about this read? I don't know what it is. I'm going to find out right now, live in the recording. All right, you ready? <clears throat> Seeking revenge against Autobot and Decepticon alike, the Combaticons hijack the space bridge and use it to alter Earth's orbit, putting it on a collision course with the sun. 
With the only means to get off-world damaged in battle, Optimus Prime and Megatron must race against time to stop the Combaticons before the Earth is destroyed. And why is this signed? <laughs> because whoever wrote the little thing decided he needed to sign it. <laughs> and I understand why he felt the need to sign it, because it's book length. This is too long, Clanky, too long. <laughs> the whole plot is spelled out in here. So, yeah, the Combaticons hijack the space bridge and use it to alter Earth's orbit, putting it on a collision course with the sun, which I feel like we've been here before. <laughs> right. There's a lot that's going to feel familiar about this episode, and granted, a lot does happen in it, so I guess I can kind of forgive the lengthy <laughs> synopsis. Yeah. It's like IMDb will only allow a certain length of synopsis before it just cuts you off and gives you a link to read the rest, and mm. I think this is like the second time I've had to click a link to get the entire synopsis. Wow. <laughs> but this is well, a very packed episode. They really put a lot of stuff in here. They did. I had not did not remember mm -mm. how packed this one is. And this I remember a lot of the feelings I had in watching this one as a young person and feeling that like this was an epic episode. Mm -hmm. It felt like that when I watched it as a kid. And I also want to say at the top Another framing that we've been sort of discovering as we talk about each and every episode is there tends to be episodes that are more plotty and more uh, – the, the plotty ones tend to have a little bit more of the lore building in them. And then mm -hmm. there's the ones with like an aboutness to them. This is about an idea. This is about a experience that young people who are watching the show might be experiencing themselves. Like when we talk about episodes like Sea Change – Right, where mm. it was like really about identity and relationships and not getting too hung up on the way people look, that kind of thing. This one falls, I think, more in the plotty kind of bucket because I am at a loss to explain what the ideas explored in this are really about. It feels more like a monthly comic book installment of a series, but I don't know if there's any other like top-level observations that you want to put in there, Hoover, before we dive in, or are we just ready to like you know turn on the TV and watch this episode well for whatever reason i feel like i've seen starstream's brigade about five times as much as i've seen the revenge of bruticus and wow. i think there's been various things some of which i'll go into later that caused that to happen i think when i first got the series on dvd i think i was you know re-watching it from the beginning i don't remember what year the rhino dvds came out but I was definitely like watching them as they came out and spending like literally $60 a season <laughs> to get these things. And I'm pretty sure that was the exact cost. That's not an exaggeration. No, it wasn't. And then, yeah, that's right. Because they split season two and season three into two sets. So I right. think they were $60 each. Wow. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I think yeah. like as I was watching those... You know, I was watching in order and I got to the end. I got through them all. But it's like by the time I got to the end, not that Transformers had gotten boring, but it was just like once you get 50 odd episodes in, it loses a little bit of a sheen. So I think at that point, I just sort of rewatched my favorites over and over and didn't really venture that far 
into season two because most of my favorites are in season one. Yep. So this episode is probably, I would say this and Bot, B-O-T, which is the last episode of season two that we haven't seen yet. Those are probably among my least seen episodes. I've probably seen them like five, four or five times in my life. Same. Which is weird. Well, and in my situation, I don't know if this this is the same for you, and I'd be curious to hear from other listeners of the podcast, is for me, a lot of these episodes get played in the background while I'm doing Mm -hmm. something else. As a matter of fact, we both have the entire series ripped to MP3, Mm -hmm. so it's like, while I'm washing dishes, I'll listen to a transformer. When I'm grocery shopping, I'll be listening to a Transformers episode. But so I don't often watch them. And when they're in a long playlist like that too, they all start to blend together and I don't remember where each of these moments came from. Like there's a line in here that Megatron says that's a super weird line where it says, You dare disrupt my Energon flow optimist. <laughs> and I have it screen capped as a thing to text you, which I still have never used. But <laughs> I, I couldn't have told you what the episode that came from, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it, that kind of thing happens. So yeah. Sitting down and giving it my focused attention for the purpose of talking about it with you on this podcast has given me a whole lot of new insights in the cartoon, but it's also revealed to me that like there are gigantic pieces of the story that I did not have assembled in its original order, right? Mm. So when, when we get to this one, I'm like, I don't remember these characters being here at all. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I, I hope you like the Transformers in this one, everybody, because they're all in this one. <laughs> <laughs> they're all in it. It's like Doug Booth. Just step aside, friend. Everybody's in this one. <laughs> so let's dive in and do it. Well, as we begin, we get exciting music right out of the gate, and we close in on the asteroid that Starscream and the Combaticons are imprisoned on at the end of last episode. Right away, it's like happening possibly mere minutes after the last episode. We have no idea what amount of time, but not much has changed. So it could be very brief amount of time. And no Victor Caroli saying previously on the Transformers. It just starts as if you know what the heck this. You really had to have watched the last episode to dive into this one and really understand everything that's happening. Mm -hmm. So we're on the same asteroid, or at least it should be the same, but given the first close-up shot, it now seems a lot bigger than it did before, as the Combaticons are like way in the background. In the foreground, we see Starscream sitting down, his elbows on his knees, and his head in his hands, when suddenly he tenses up, grabs his head, and yells, I can't stand it! I can't stand it! This is a cosmic prison! Shut up! Brawl takes a shot at Starscream, and it knocks him over, and Starscream transforms and flies off. This is a pointless move, as Onslaught points out. Where are you going? You can't make it back to Earth! You don't have enough power! Besides, this army has a mission! And so Starscream turns around and fires bombs at the argumentative Combaticons, not deterring them in the least. He's had it with them, and he continues flying off, because... It's important to note here in the beginning of this episode, too, that they've taken care to show that Starscream and the Combaticons are pretty dinged up. They're all dingy, and they got all these little dents all over them. <laughs> this quickly gets dropped, but I like the idea that, it, at least visually, they're implying that there's been an enormous passage of time, at least in, to the extent that they're filthy and not maintained. So... There's at least an implication that some time has passed here. Well, and if also, not time, damage from the sudden appearance of Menasaur at the end of last episode. 
That's true. Because basically, yeah. Metasaur shows up. We get a <laughs> zoom in on Starscream's face where he's going, uh, this isn't going to end well. And then <laughs> we see them all imprisoned on the asteroid, pretty much. That's right. Yeah. So apparently, Menasaur did some pounding on them before they got exiled. <laughs> also, I I really do enjoy Onslaught as a character in this one. How mm-hmm. he is this sort of singularly focused general. Right? Yeah, he's a he, thinker. Yeah, yeah, we don't get a lot of thinkers on the Decepticons. Yeah, and I think that's another reason this one felt epic because for the first time, like especially after Triple Takeover where we watch these two dum-dums try mm-hmm. to do Megatron's job and fail miserably and really making the case for why Megatron can't be replaced. Now we got this guy who maybe he could. Mm-hmm. And so... Megatron's imprisoned him before. Right. So that just gives further fuel to the thought that this guy could be trouble for Megatron. Yeah. Also, it's such a fascinating dichotomy with Megatron. I feel like... He's kind of standing in for what Shockwave was in the comics. He doesn't mm. feel like he's as passionate about power the way Megatron is. He's not as he's not as philosophical about it as Megatron is when power flows to the one who knows how, desire is not enough and all that. He's much more pragmatic and about details and events and plans and strategy. And and also he's very proud of himself for that. He doesn't talk about like why it's awesome to rule. He's just Mm-mm. like, but we, we'll just do it because I'm very brilliant and we'll just do it. That's all. <laughs> so he feels less passionate than Megatron in that way. And that also makes for a neat dichotomy with these, these two potential arch enemies. Mm-hmm. So, and, and we're going to talk about that a lot in this episode, I think. But okay, it's one to like underline that Onslaught is a very fascinating character. I know why I like the Combaticons as a kid even though I wasn't a huge into the Decepticons. But I remember thinking these characters were different and extra special. And I think Onslaught was a big part of that. So Starscream hmm. flies off. Well, Brawl and Swindle decide to add Starscream to the list of people to get revenge on. And Vortex asks if they're getting any closer to Cybertron. We pull back to see that Blastoff is actually towing the asteroid towards Cybertron. Thankfully, there's a space shuttle on the team. I guess it was pretty pointless to exile them to an asteroid in space when one of them is a space shuttle. <laughs> Somebody wasn't really thinking. Oh, well, it was Astrochain who was tasked with getting them as far away from Megatron as possible, right? Mm-hmm. And let's not forget that Astrochain suffers from narcolepsy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so at some point he fell asleep at the wheel, hit something, they fell out of the asteroid, and Astrochain said, eh, good enough. Going home. <laughs> We cut to the aforementioned planet Cybertron as Shockwave is running a host of bubblehead drones through a target practice scenario using holographic targets. But then looking into the monitor, he sees something that's not a hologram. Blastoff towing an asteroid towards Cybertron. And Shockwave takes this as a threat. Shockwave orders the drones to attack and demands the surrender of the attackers. Blastoff tows the asteroid down to the planet and everyone else flies down to the surface. As the Combaticons are surrounded by Bubblehead drones, Shockwave demands, Identify yourselves! Some refer to us as Combaticons, but... I am also known as Bruticus. As the Combaticons merge together, the Bubbleheads attack, 
with Shockwave ordering they destroy him, but they're not damaging this guy. Bruticus grabs Shockwave off the ground, identifying him as their leader, and reasoning that if Shockwave is destroyed, there won't be anyone to give the drones orders. But if there's anyone who knows his role, it's Shockwave. I must protect Cybertron from all hostile threats. Shockwave transforms and shoots Bruticus in the face, knocking him down. Which looks really cool. <laughs> this this episode, I'm going to have a lot of notes on the animation. It's really, the first act, it's super hit or miss. Like, there's parts that look really goofy, and there's parts that look really great. But the idea of Shockwave being in the hand of Bruticus, or essentially the, the size relation to Bruticus is what Shockwave would have been to us holding him in our hands, right? Mm -hmm. So to hit, for him to turn to gun mode and shoot Bruticus in the face is really a, a neat idea. But did you also notice, if you go back, everybody, and like hit the back 30 on your podcatcher, they didn't do the robot voice effect on Corey Burton's performance here. Mm. And I don't know if it's just me, but it was easier to hear the spike in his performance, like Spike Witwicky, mm. because when he's playing Shockwave, he said as much as that he was trying to do an impersonation of David Warner, the great British actor. But you hear more of Spike in it when vocal effect is not there. Later on in the episode, they bring the vocal effect back, and it sounds more David Warner. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just in his performance. But for some reason, like when I first was watching the scene, I'm like, why does Shockwave sound so weird? And he sounds just almost kind of tired. And then, <laughs> yeah, I, I listen a little bit more carefully, and sure enough, that effect is not there. So he shoots Bruticus in the face. So what happens next? Well, the bubbleheads surround Bruticus, but he's not phased by this. Vortex's blades start spinning on Bruticus's arm, and they make short work of a handful of the drones. Then he rears back on his hands and pushes himself up into the air and slams his feet down, knocking the rest of the drones out of the way. So how many minutes in are we at this point? Over We're only like three minutes in. <laughs> And, side note, I took multiple nights to do this script, and it took me over an hour just to get three minutes into the show. <laughs> I was going to say, because I spent probably the most time on this part of the show, like the first act, doing screen grabs for talking about all my bits that I want to bring up, because this is bananas. It starts off so fast. So this is even faster than the beginning of Child's Play, where we talked about that part where the Decepticons sort of take over a baseball park and harass the baseball players. A lot of stuff happens in the first, like, four minutes of that episode. This is just so fast-forwarded. We're not given any context as to what Bruticus's relationship is with the Decepticons. You're getting it through the dialogue when he says, you know, we've got to get revenge on Cybertron for some reason. So even if you haven't been paying attention, even if you missed the last episode, you at least understand, okay, these are Decepticons who have some kind of beef with Megatron. But then, like, the fight starts... And it's just bananas fighting. And we get to see a combiner who actually uses one of his components, what, mm -hmm. one of their abilities, like the way he uses vortex blades. And then, yeah, like when he does that sort of like kick up off the ground, like a pro wrestler, like doing it like when they kick off somebody who's pinning them and lands on his feet and you see all of the drones get knocked down. It's just so much action is happening so quickly. But, but as I was engaging with this and feeling that excitement, I was also thinking about how like this could only work because it's part of a multi-part story, right? Mm -hmm. If we started this and we had to do all the introducing of the, of the premise and concept, we couldn't have jumped into it this fast. So even though I think we both have been, but I want to I wanna take, and I want to speak for you, I want to take credit for my part in this, is celebrating this idea of the done-in-one story. 
here is clear evidence of how much more you can do when you have episodes that depend on prior knowledge. Right? Mm -hmm. This isn't something yeah. that is easy to dive into first try. So pros and cons, trade-offs. That's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to say one's better than the other, but this points to the trade-off that's at work. When you do something like Sea Change, you've got to have a lot of preamble. But when you do something like Starscream's Brigade and Revenge of Bruticus, look at how much you can get into in three minutes of animation. <laughs> So, yeah, he does this cool bounce up and stomps down, and the drones fall down, and then, is there more? Tell me there's more. <laughs> well, the drones continue to put up a fight, but it seems Shockwave's been knocked out. He's still in good mode, lying on the ground, and a few of the drones attempt to lift him up to no avail. <laughs> but Bruticus reaches down and picks up Shockwave and uses him like any other gun against the drones, more or less destroying them all. Bruticus then tucks Shockwave into the cannons on his back, and then fires Shockwave out of the cannon, off into the upper atmosphere. Bruticus disassembles into the five Combaticons, and they begin collecting the littered drone bodies and haul them off. Now, quick little thing. Shockwave doesn't seem to recognize the Combaticons, so unfortunately the backstory from last episode, which explained that Renegade Decepticons were removed from their bodies by Shockwave, doesn't get expanded on here. Not even a, you, you're the Renegades I imprisoned line or anything. That's too bad, but it's understandable. After all, this is a different writer than the last episode, and he's not necessarily going to pick up on all the threads that are left dangling. However, it, you are correct. If that line was uttered, it would provide some extra context that would make this stand alone a little bit mm -hmm. better. So yeah. yeah, good call. Good catch. And one more thing before we switch scenes, I meant to bring this up last episode, but there was so much material in the last show I plum forgot. So this is just something I only recently noticed and wanted to run it by you live, Jersey. So Jersey does not know what I'm about to say. I, do, I don't. And this is this is exactly the sort of cheeky thing that you've done. All the years I've known you, you've done you've done, sent me emails that had this trick in it before. Okay, so I'm gonna look at what the text says here. <laughs> Yeah, I, I changed the color of the text to white, and the background is white, so he couldn't just he couldn't read it as he was breezing through the document. Yep. Okay. So but we were introduced to Guardian yeah. Robots back in The Secret of Omega Supreme. Guardian Robots. Now we're getting Renegade Decepticons. Guardians. Renegades. <laughs> Do those names ring a bell, Jersey? No, the Guardians! <laughs> So is this Hasbro asking for those terms to be injected in so they can maybe somehow sneak a trademark or something out from under the oh GoBot's nose? Gosh. It could yeah. just be coincidence. But knowing all the corporate warfare that goes on, it wouldn't yeah. surprise me if Hasbro was trying to go, oh, you can't call your GoBot's renegades and guardians because we trademark that. <laughs> So that just hit me last week, 35 years with this show, and I'm still spawning new thoughts about it. <laughs> so we change scenes to a cityscape on Earth. We see a city street, and then the asphalt begins to crack. And up out of the ground come the three Insecticons. What? The Insecticons? This I did not remember. But also, <laughs> as they were doing the city pan... I had to stop because I caught a building in the background. Now, there's probably lots of cities that have a building this shape, but it looks surprisingly like the Christopher Inn, which was a landmark here in Columbus, Ohio. So, 
are the Insecticons attacking Columbus, Ohio? We've already <laughs> explored this in the show that I get super excited when they have anything happen in any place that I've ever been in a Transformers episode. Like when Optimus <laughs> Prime said in TFA, we'll take the I-94. I'm like, that's where I drive. So now it's like the Insecticons are attacking where I live. That is so cool. <laughs> Maybe. I think the Capitol Records building in California, I think it's also shaped that same way. Oh, so I'm sure there's lots of buildings that's basically shaped like a cylinder. Don't take this from me. <laughs> oh, that's right. They're in Columbus for sure. <laughs> it's canon. <laughs> that's where we put the ding. <laughs> now, full disclosure, for whatever reason, this isn't an episode that I watched a bunch. And when I happened to rewatch it a week or so ago, after not having seen it in probably a good few years, I didn't remember the Insecticons being in it or ever showing up in season two anymore. So it's nice to still get surprised by this show. In fact, on some past episode of ours, I have no idea which one now, I talked about how my mom just had to go to the post office one day after picking me up from school, and I was just like, but I have to watch Transformers. I have to. It's... There's... <laughs> I I still remember that sense of urgency. Yes, I know exactly the feeling you were feeling just then, and the injustice of I got to go do an adult thing with you instead of watching Transformers, the most important part of my day. Why would you do this to me? Well, she said we'll be home by then, and then cut to me standing with her in an excruciatingly long line at the post office, and me literally staring at the clock on the wall, knowing Transformers was starting just then. I remember just like staring at that clock and seeing the little hand and big hand yeah. get to when Transformers starts. And I was just like, <laughs> <sighs> spoiler alert, I didn't get home to see even one minute of Transformers that day. And I had to ask my friend Corey at school the next day what happened. And as I'll tell you today, everything happens in this episode. So the moral of this story is that my mom made me miss the original airing of this episode. And if you flash forward in the story about six months or so, my mom's no longer living in my house. What? Some might say it was my parents' divorce. Or oh. did I secretly orchestrate things to kick her out for making me miss this key episode? You'll never learn the truth. The facts die with me. <laughs> this episode just got dark <laughs> anyway the insecticons and their clones are munching down on some office buildings for a snack in columbus ohio that's where they are we pull back to see dozens of insecticons present just chowing down we cut to megatron remarking on their voracious appetites as we pull back to see the device from last time we saw the insecticons apparently the insecticons eat get energy this machine sucks the energy out of them and converts it to energon cubes we see five tubes that the insecticons stand in with a pipe connecting all of the tubes to a larger machine with a dozen insecticons waiting their turn to convert their dinner into energon cubes now this seems familiar too yeah this was in the insecticon syndrome am i right it was in the insecticons last appearance i think i don't remember which one that was but we've definitely seen this type of machine before Previously, Megatron was like, oh, we only got a little Energon from it, sorry. And he was hawking all the Energon, hiding mm. the rest of it from the Insecticons. Yeah. So 
right away, it seems like this episode is almost like copy-pasting from previous episodes. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. And not to... I'm not pointing that out as like a, a dig or a critique because it certainly feels exciting in the sense that how many characters have we seen in this episode already? You know, mm -hmm. again, we're like maybe six minutes in and we've seen the Combaticon, Starscream, Megatron, and the Insecticons. Holy cow. We have, and as you said, we haven't seen the Insecticons in a long time. So it's already starting to feel like, uh oh, we're getting close to full. We're probably going to see like one Autobot in this one now. It's in terms of like character balance and the way that they shake out how many characters get to talk in an episode, but they ain't done yet. Yeah, in a typical like hour long show, you have what's called like the A plot and the B plot, and the B plot is much smaller, and oftentimes it's like more character oriented than plot oriented, mm. and it's it almost like feels that they tried to shove an A plot and a B plot in here, but this is only mm. a thirty minute cartoon. So, yeah, which yeah. usually only has room for, like, one plot. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and, and actually, it feels like at points they tried to put in a C-plot, too, in this one. It's really <laughs> packed. It's almost too much. Mm -hmm. But you're right. It's weird that already we're seeing, like, I thought we've done this one. But, okay, so... <laughs> and also, didn't the last time Megatron saw the Insecticons, he wanted to kill them? <laughs> Every time Megatron sees the Insecticons ends with him wanting to murder them. <laughs> but somehow, someway, they're back on good terms again. And this is something like their fourth appearance. And as we say, on, at the end of the last three, he wanted to kill them. So for whatever reason, they keep making up with each other. So Megatron calls Thundercracker and Dirge over to take the Energon Cubes to the Space Bridge. And sadly, this is probably one of Thundercracker's final appearances. And at first, they color him like Starscream. <laughs> Thundercracker's just the Rodney Dangerfield of all the Seekers. <laughs> That's the story of my life. No respect. That'll get no respect at all. You no respect at all. I, I had a very similar thought. Not, not, as, not as succinctly and eloquently put, but yeah... Megatron's like, Thundercracker, get over here. I'm like, oh, cool. Is Thundercracker going to have a line? You don't even see his face. He just like fly, <laughs> he flies and lands down in the shot. You see him from behind as he scoops up the other chunk cubes and flies away. And then we see him from a great distance as he flies into the space bridge. And that's it. Bye, Thundercracker. <laughs> it was nice knowing you. You do a pan across the city, and the Insecticons have truly done a number on the buildings here. Some look literally half-eaten. Some are smoking. There's an incredible amount of damage. Right, like the buildings are tipped almost sideways. Yeah. They're all at different angles. The, the, the city looks like it's been gutted. It looks like some kind of environmental catastrophe has happened there. Wow. It's a, it, there's a wide pan, and they show this, and it looks like a post-apocalypse kind of thing. So good thing the Autobots have just shown up. Prime, Prowl, Sideswipe, and Tracks are here. It's a good handful of Season 1 guys. The Autobots begin attacking the Insecticons, many of which burrow underground to get away. Trax discovers one of their tunnels and enters, firing a few missiles at the burrowing Insecticons. And then, rejoining Prime outside, the pair are ambushed by Megatron, who fires on them from a cliff above. You dare to disrupt my Energon flow, Optimus Prime? How would you like your central circuit system disrupted, Megatron? Yeah, that line, <laughs> that 
that the whole exchange between the two is super wonky and, and clunky, right? It, it feels like something I would have written in my Transformers fanfics, which I did have Transformers comic <laughs> fanfics that I wrote, and my teachers would take away from me in my ELA class. I, I have a very specific memory of Mrs. Heitman coming over, and I was like just working on like the chrome finish on Optimus's like shoulder pipes, and she like just took it off my desk while she was talking, didn't even acknowledge that she was doing it. <laughs> anyway. But yes, this line, you dare dis to disrupt my Energen Flow Optimus Prime. Like I said, I have a screen cap of that that I've been waiting to, for an occasion to send you. And I have yet to find that occasion because it is such a wonky line. But, <laughs> because but I also... don't disrupt your Energen Flow. <laughs> I know not to do that. Me. You respect me as a friend. But also when you watch the scene, first it's the awkward exchange, but then you get a real sense of how the animation, especially in Act 1, is so all over the map because you look at that shot of megatron he looks great it's a really cool stage shot you're looking up at him three-quarter view he, he's drawn really well he's perfectly on model and then when optimus says his little bit about like oh gosh how does that line go he's like how would you like your central circuit system disrupted <laughs> whatever <laughs> as he say that he's walking up the mountain and look at him like he's just it's it's like a, like a kid drew it or something it's it's really really goofy looking and it's the movement's really bad but then wait for everybody's Act three, suddenly it gets like super anime and amazing. So this is a, a, a weird episode for a lot of reasons. Prime blasts Megatron and starts scaling the hill to continue the battle. But he sees the Insecticons moving on to an adjacent neighborhood. So he gives up pursuing Megatron and rolls out to the city streets in hopes of stopping the Insecticon horde. But the humans who live here are just now fleeing the city. And it's hard to wage war against Insecticons with humans running everywhere. This area is inhabited. It's too dangerous. We can't fight anyone with all these people around. Attention, Protectobots. Evacuation assistance needed now. What? Attention, Protectobots. Evacuation assistance needed now. Oh, boy. I thought we were all done with these. <laughs> But here is season two's final. So a door in the side of a brick building lowers and out come a police car, a police motorcycle with no rider, an ambulance, and a blue fire engine. Then as they head down the street, a helicopter flies above them. These are the Protectobots. But we'll worry about introducing them once they actually speak. For now, we're cutting to the arc where Perceptor and Spike are talking about outer space. Teletrans shows a feed of the stars on screen. If you're really interested in the universe, Spike, I can enlarge it for you. So, Spike's back. How long has it been? We haven't seen Spike act in an episode in a long time. And <laughs> what I... about that great sitting he did in Cosmic Rust in that three <sighs> seconds? <laughs> Don't get me started. I'm still so mad that that was my, that was our last encounter with Sparkplug. What what a ripoff! But at least I ha I can hang on to the hope that Spike is going to somehow help the Autobots make better choices in this one. Right? Right? He's got to. Well, we'll have to see. Perceptor transforms to microscope mode without shrinking and points his lens at the screen, the video screen. <laughs> Spike then looks through the lens. That's not how video <laughs> screens work. 
can't look through a telescope lens into a video monitor and see further into space because they're showing space on the monitor. I know Spike was probably homeschooled by Sparkplug, but geez, come on. Well, maybe we could infer that Teletran 1 has the highest pixel density. It's so high that it's like it's actually crisper than reality, right? Maybe it's that. Crisper than reality. <laughs> yeah, yes. It's higher definition than real life. When you guys give your five-star reviews to this podcast, which you all should be doing right now, uh, yeah. just say we're crisper than reality. <laughs> we have more pixels in our screens than there are atoms in the universe. That's, that's how high definition we are, yeah. So uh, that's all I could guess if that was possible. Because, yes, if anybody's gone up to a screen real close... There's pixels there. <laughs> so, but the only the other thing I can infer is that somehow Perceptor's playing some kind of prank on Spike. <laughs> <sighs> well, somehow, some way, Spike sees a shooting star through the lens, and Perceptor adds, "Of course, that's not really a shooting star. It's really a meteorite entering Earth's atmosphere." I know. I'd hate to imagine a real star shooting into the Earth. Well, the chances of this planet ever colliding with a real star are remote. I hope so. It'd mean the end of everything. And then the viewers are shown a familiar object flying through space. It's Shockwave, still in gun mode, spinning out of control. And he literally bumps into Starscream and transforms. Let go! Shockwave! Starscream, you must help me. Cybertron has been invaded. Cybertron? I'm that close to Cybertron? Well, welcome aboard, Shockwave. It looks like we've got a planet to reclaim. And as Starscream turns back to jet mode, Shockwave hops on like he's on a horse. <laughs> It looks pretty ridiculous, but I'm sure Starscream can fly much faster than Shockwave can, so I can't say it doesn't make sense. For what it's worth, I think it's cute. Also, one thing I'm learning to really love about Shockwave is how ready he's, he is to put aside any misgivings he has about you as a person as long as you mention what his mission is. Right? <laughs> his mission is always to serve Megatron and protect Cybertron. So even if, let's say you're like Shockwave's ex-girlfriend and you really burned him bad, Right? Like he's written songs about the heartbreak that you caused him. <laughs> You'd come back to his life and be like, hey, I have this plan to help Megatron. Be like, okay, let's work together. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's always ready because like he, he has every reason to hate Starscream. Starscream has messed with him a lot in this series. Starscream's even talked poorly about him behind his back, and I'm sure that got back to Shockwave somehow. Yet, when Starscream's like, is, is in a position to help him reclaim Cybertron, he's like, you have to help me. Let's do it. He's just another Cybertronian. And Cybertron's yep. under siege. So, to in that way, I kind of really dig how mission-driven Shockwave is. Yeah, we could learn we could learn something from this guy. He commits to something bigger than him. What's the bigger thing, Megatron? Well, maybe you could pick a better <laughs> target, but at least he's got that. And then so you get this cute moment where they fly off together, <laughs> Shockwave riding him like a, like like a, a horse, like you said. It's it's, it's pretty cute. And then we cut back to Shockwave's house on Cybertron, and the Compaticons are exploring the digs. Onslaught admires the Space Bridge elevator and remarks, 
Decepticon technology has advanced considerably since we were imprisoned by Megatron. Perhaps the power of this device could be altered to affect our revenge on Megatron. Aha, so Strauss is using that plot point, or at least mentioning it. Meanwhile, Brawl and Blastoff are sitting off to themselves. I say we attack the Earth now and crush Megatron like an Insecticon! Please, Brawl, restrain your primitive impulses. I'm sure Onslaught has a brilliant plan in mind. He always does. And Onslaught, still fiddling with the space bridge controls, says... I can direct the movement of the planet Earth and send it on a direct course into the sun. I never noticed in this scene that he's actually removed some of his own body mm -hmm. to rig the device that is going to hijack the space bridge in some way. And also, earlier when Spike and Perceptor were talking about shooting stars and real stars, and Spike's like, oh, it'd be the end of everything if a star ran into the Earth. <laughs> But that'll never happen. Wink, wink. <laughs> well, again, I think about this as somebody who writes stories for young people. I think that like is a nice little bit of laying the groundwork for the impact of what Onslaught says here, right? Mm -hmm. Because to some children, it might be a little too abstract to push the earth in the sun. Most of us understand that. But having Spike underline it ahead of time by saying that would mean the end of everything. Yeah. So I kind of dig that scene as a functional bit of storytelling in that, one, it gives us that nice smooth transition to turning over to Shockwave, because as Spike's looking through the telescope, we see Shockwave tumbling through space, and apparently Spike didn't, but it was a wave to get us over there in a nice smooth way. But it also sets the groundwork for what Onslaught just revealed as far as what his plan is. So it's got some tidy stuff. And also, once again... I haven't been keeping track of how many characters we've seen, but we're seeing a lot of characters, and yet I don't feel like this is terribly confusing. Yeah, they're keeping it pretty lean, not in terms of character for sure, but like with what's going on. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's a big attack on Earth with Insecticons eating everything, but here, now that the Combaticons are in control, they're laying out what they're going to do. And I really like the fact that Brawl and Blastoff are basically just sitting around <laughs> commenting on what's happening. That is something we have not had a lot of lately. And it's something that we both talked about, seeing Decepticons just doing non-villain things, right? Mm -hmm. We're actually getting to know how these people feel. Yep. <laughs> what is Brawl like hitting things? You know? Yep. What is Blastoff like? Well, he likes being fussy and, and a little bit arrogant and also a little bit admiring of Onslaught. Yeah, so... I really like that because not only is Blastoff very howdy towdy, <laughs> seems like he would be buds with dead end. Yeah. But he respects Onslaught. He says he has a brilliant plan in mind. He always does. Yeah. So there's obviously a history of Blastoff following Onslaught and being on board with all of his plans, at least until Megatron threw them in a drawer. Yeah, yeah. And so now we're getting a team that's more cohesive. Even though Brawl is, you know, expressing, I, I'm impatient, I want to go crush people, mm -hmm. he doesn't push back on Blastoff. He doesn't, he doesn't even put down Blastoff, right? Mm -hmm. When you go back to Fire on the Mountain, the moment you leave the three Seekers alone... Yeah. They're bickering like crazy. 
right? These characters don't bicker. They actually seem to respect one another, and that is something we haven't seen in the Decepticons before. Also, Onslaught is doing his own work, mm -hmm. right? He's not saying, blast off, you go do this, Vortex, you go do that. He's alone by himself doing the plan, and the other the Combaticons are standing around going like, <laughs> well, when, when he's done, he's done, and it's going to be great. Right? Yeah. This is very different Decepticons than what we've seen. These guys are breaking the convention of what we've come to expect from. And what I've talked about in the past about like Megatron's, one of his fatal flaws is that he's going to suffer brain drain because there's no way to be rewarded for your contribution. You're only punished for your failure. Now I got a team of dudes who are, we don't see Onslaught giving anybody a hard time for failing mm -hmm. or not failing. Right? Right. Wow. So we cut back to the Earth City under siege by the Insecticon army. And the Protectobots have arrived to, well, protect. Attention! Evacuate the area! Repeat! Evacuate the area! Wait for rescue vehicles! And we get no real sense of which one is talking, but it's actually the helicopter, Blades, voiced by Frank Welker. Yeah, that guy really needed more roles, <laughs> didn't he? The police car streetwise zooms around picking up humans. Finding a man passed out on the ground, he shouts, First aid! Injury over here! Now, Streetwise is voiced by Peter Cullen. I think we've heard of that guy. And this is a good scene to stop and watch the animation because it suddenly gets kind of like 70s Studio Ghibli a little bit. <laughs> like when you look at the people who are in Streetwise that he's carting around, we're not seeing the stereotypical hard hat people running no. around right <laughs> we're getting people of all different shapes and sizes as we see these crowds running around so bravo for that like finally getting some advancement in the way <laughs> the people of Earth 60 episodes in <laughs> yeah but when you look at the people inside the car it's like some of them are very cartoony mm -hmm. i would say like almost panda go panda cartoony so that's interesting, too. And that, again, points to some of the things I'm going to sort of draw our attention to later in the episode. It makes you wonder if this one, for some reason, got shipped to a different animation studio for some scenes. Because it looks very different at times. Well, First Aid backs up to the passed out man, and he opens up the back of his ambulance as two metal arms lift the man inside. And then presumably it's Blades who adds, That does it, Prime! All humans evacuated! So that's just two of the five Protectobots speaking so far, with no new voice talent. With the humans safely evacuated, Prime orders the Autobots to blast away at the Insecticons, which they do, taking quite a few of them out. Yeah. So Alpha says, let's blast them, and then they all stay in car mode, and all these little tiny guns come out of ports out of all their <laughs> car modes. Like, they're little tiny guns that just like pop out of like their headlights and off the uh, top of their hoods. So, yeah, that, that's something we haven't seen before. There's a couple things that happened in this episode in terms of Autobots' capabilities that we've never seen before, <laughs> and this is one of them. Well, Sideswipe says, We're wasting good ammo on these creeps! I'd like to just squash a few of them! And just then, Powerglide flies in and lands, Spike and Perceptor exiting the plane and calling for Optimus. What is it, Spike? Prime, Teletron reports energy disruption caused by signals from Cybertron. Cybertron. Somehow, Earth's orbit has been altered. It's heading toward the sun. We must take the space bridge to Cybertron at once and stop whatever's causing this. Okay, so this whole scene has some really cute animation moments. So Optimus is in truck mode, racing down 
a street to catch some insecticons. And then when you hear Spike call him, the truck actually turns to the right just a little bit as if he's turning his head. So when you hear Prime say, what is it, Spike? <laughs> it's actually like the <laughs> truck turns to do that, which is strangely anthropomorphically charming. But then when he transforms, he runs over to Perceptor and he stands heroically. But then as Perceptor updates him, he says, there are signals from Cybertron. And whoever, can you describe the emoting that Optimus <laughs> does as he says that? <laughs> well, previously his hands were in fists. He was standing straight up, rigid like a heroic prime would be. Mm-hmm. But then his knees buckle. <laughs> his whole upper body shifts forward and his hands open up completely. <laughs> It's it's almost like a silent film acting, right? It's like, it's so, it's not super exaggerated, but it's like, why did you go through all the trouble to animate that where he's going like, wah, and his hands flash out like that? <laughs> I don't know. It, it just, it struck me as super cute. So leaving the other Autobots to assault the Insecticons, Prime, Perceptor, and Spike roll out to the purple donut in the desert. But Megatron is already there. Megatron sees Prime heading for the space bridge controls and yells for Shrapnel to stop him. Then Shrapnel takes baby steps over to the space bridge controls and gnaws a part of the controls off with his pincers and burrows away. Prime runs to the controls with them all fritzing with electricity as Shrapnel has just made the space bridge unusable. As Prime says they're too late, Spike looks up at the growing sun in the sky as we head to our first commercial break. It's a great shot. It is a great shot at the end when Optimus says, we're too late. And then, yeah, Spike looks over his shoulder, and then the final shot is just the sun, and you actually see, like, the solar flares popping off of it. So we're close enough that we can see those, like, giant fountains of lava that are bouncing off <laughs> of the sun. Again, really cementing this idea for young people so that it's not too abstract. Where When you see the sun, it's quite big. It's bigger than we've ever seen it in our lives. So... The threat feels very real to from an 11-year-old standpoint. So I'm nervous. I don't even really like hot summer days. I can't imagine how much worse <laughs> it's about to get. So what can we do about it, Hoover, when I'm feeling this upset? Well, when you're feeling upset, there's a problem. And we need to throw money at that problem. <laughs> Are you saying that we're going to the store? <laughs> we're going to the store. All we're right. not going to the store where they sold Golden Girls. We're going to the store that sells real things. (laughs) Golden Girls being that weird toy line, not the Rue McClanahan, the B. Arthur television show. So yes, so what are we going to buy? So I didn't remember the Insecticons playing such a major role in this episode, and you know what else I didn't remember? The products featured in all these commercials. (laughs) Like Nerfles. Apparently, they're a ball to be around. The Nerfles Officer Bob, Speedy, Frankie, and Scratch Each sold separately So much fun to clown around To change and rearrange around To bounce and up and roll around Yes, Nerfles are a ball to be around They switch around, they spin around Nerfles turn your day around Yes, Nerfles are a ball to be around Oh my gosh And I do remember this commercial But I have not thought about it in probably 35 years And I also love the voiceover. I don't know who did this voiceover, but he did a lot of toy commercials and other commercials when we were kids. But that, that, like, that high-pitched voice. Oh. (laughs) But actually, it seems like the Nerfles had a lot of playability features. Like, you could swap out their bodies. You could spin them on their nose. So not 
too bad. I'm not buying any, but it's not too bad of a toy. <laughs> For everyone who thinks all the 80s properties have been brought back, nope. nope. No one's brought back Nerfles. <laughs> Somebody call Adam Sandler. It needs to be made. <laughs> well, since he didn't want any Nerfles, let's check out this next commercial for Pamela the Living Doll. Okay, <laughs> this has to be the most unintentionally frightening commercial I've ever seen. <laughs> it hits you with everything that makes you unnerved. There's a doll sitting in the woods by itself. And <laughs> the fact that it starts that way, it's night in the woods with a doll by itself. I'm like, whoa, is this Annabelle? What's going on? And it's this realistic looking doll too, right? It's not like a Cabbage Patch Kid or something where it's kind of abstracted and cutified. No, it's like this little tiny person sitting in the woods. And then the lights come on and we're seeing these ultra creepy sort of like mashup between E.T. and the Close Encounters of the Third Kind aliens <laughs> as they're fawning over this doll. And there's like little kid aliens. There's grown up aliens who are going like, oh, while these creepy aliens with these big eyes are looking at this weird doll who's like talking in that calm voice that's my nose ah get me <laughs> out of here no it's almost like someone saw pamela and like it was like oh that's creepy but maybe we can deflect from her creepiness if we insert even creepier aliens into the commercial <laughs> and then in oh comparison pamela will look wonderful <laughs> And all he did was double down on anything that would, anything that would frighten an 11 year old kid. Oh my gosh. I'm glad, you know, I probably did see this commercial and then I just pushed it, pushed <laughs> it all the way down to the bottoms of my feet. I'm never going to think about that again. And you brought it back. Thank you, dear friend. Not only no sale, I'm going to give you money to never show me that thing again. <laughs> well, oh. okay. How about this commercial for the Puffalumps? Like to feel your cheeks so rosy, puff a lump, you're comfy, cozy, cause I love from head to toesy. The puff a lumps, lovable lumps of snuggly stuff. Puff a lump, mine. Only from Fisher Price. <laughs> now, do you really not remember the puff a lumps? No, I did not. Oh. See, I, I had like 16 or 17 sisters, and so Puffalumps actually did make it into our household. And they were they were really soft, but I'll tell you, I'm actually going to buy three. And the moment that I knew that they had my money was when they showed the crying pro wrestler reaching for his Puffalump. <laughs> it's like anytime you could show like big, strong men being vulnerable and like present me with alternate modes of manliness, I'm like, I'm in. Here, take my money. I'll take the elephant. And actually, there was a Puffalump cartoon special too, which I used to have on VHS. <laughs> And I, and I only remember one line from it. It was this little elephant who just kept going, going on a picnic, going on a picnic. <laughs> <laughs> it was super cute. So, yep, okay. I One out of three isn't too bad. And I'm still trying <laughs> to shake off the hives, like the emotional hives I have from seeing that living doll. The living doll! The living doll. Don't say that! <laughs> My gosh! What was wrong with you people? I, I really do think maybe it was like some kind of like Halloween three kind of plot where some kind of like it was she was actually intended to be something awful. Oh, my gosh. Whoever just get let's get back to the cartoon so I can stop thinking about Pamela the Living Doll. Well, as we return, Pamela the Living Doll joins the combaticons. 
Don't. I thought you were my okay. friend. <laughs> as we return, we join the Combaticons on Cybertron as Onslaught addresses the others. I'm pleased to report that our mission of revenge is proceeding splendidly. Using existing space bridge technology, we shall drive the Earth with Megatron on it into the sun where he will brawl. What is it? We're under attack! The Combaticons look up to see a trio of crazy fluorodairy spaceships descending down on them. So they spring into action and attack. But they soon find they're not stopping these ships, not even slowing them down. As we pan across the planetscape, we see why. So this ca- cartoon, like this, is where we're like careening just back and forth between amazing drawings of robots and like chunky Duplo robots, like we saw Optimus climb up that hill earlier. But I gotta tell you, I am so in love with these super bananas designs, like these these things, like you said, like the crazy Florodairy spaceships, because it's like sort of a Battlestar Galactica 1970s spaceship <laughs> at its core, but then it's got these wacky metallic tendrils that are just like kind of flopping on the side, and then coming out of the front are two gigantic, well, I can only describe them as like like scorpion arms, right? Metallic Pincers, scorpion arms. But, almost. But instead of being pincers, there's, there's scythes. <laughs> yeah. So, this was extreme with an exclamation point before extreme became commonly used in kids' media. It's just such a bananas design, and I love that it's only there for, like, maybe two minutes of animation. But somebody had to design that thing, and it's super cool. Well, then we see that Shockwave is at the controls of the hologram machine that we saw earlier. Oh. He was using these controls for holographic adversaries for training purposes that he was training the Bubblehead drones with. Not bad illusions, Shockwave. Once the Combaticons use up all their power, they will be easy to defeat. Then we shall resume control of Cybertron. I am Guardian of Cybertron. Megatron appointed me. Yeah, he appointed me, not you. He doesn't even like you. He called you a child last episode. I was there. He invited me to Earth, even. I'm special, and you're not. I do love that dynamic. Well, Starscream wants to get in on the hologram action, but Shockwave doesn't surrender the controls. But he does decide to change things up, changing the holograms to giant purple gargoyles. Wait, this is a hologram machine. Did Shockwave invent synergy here? Is Shockwave going to disguise himself as a pink-haired singer and head to the top of the charts? Oh my gosh, there's there's the fanfic that needs to happen where you bridge those two television shows that way. Sadly, no, but as the spaceship holograms fade out, causing the Combaticons to think they atomize their foes, a dark cloud appears as winged purple gargoyles emerge. And then Vortex tries to ape Rumble Stick. Where did they come from? Who cares? Let's annihilate them! And with the Combaticons busy fighting holograms, Shockwave and Starscream sneak into headquarters. Seeing the alterations made by Onslaught, Shockwave is distressed. Someone has altered the space bridge receiver. The Earth is on a collision course with the Sun. Terrific! All the Autobots on Earth will be destroyed! But Megatron is also on Earth. Megatron? Destroyed? I must try to reverse the procedure. You will do nothing of the sort. Not yet, anyway. 
Someone altered the space ridge receiver. I told Megatron I'd leave everything just as he left it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> You're making me break a promise. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned to really like Shockwave in this series because one of the things I really enjoy is when he is sort of put out by things mm-hmm. like this. Like, like uh, Megatron. I don't know where Megatron is, but I'll keep trying to call him. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> And they're like, somebody changed the controls. Oh my gosh, what am I going to tell Megatron? (laughs) (laughs) I think, as far as I know, he's like the only Decepticon that we've ever heard be really stressed out, right? Like, Starscream has tantrums, but he's never, like, worried about what's going to happen when Megatron finds out. He's definitely the most anxious Decepticon. (laughs) (sighs) But then Starscream shoots Shockwave, knocking him out. Starscream is impressed with the Combaticon's actions and plans to use their plan to rid himself of Megatron. Now, during the scene, we get some really lovely shots. Like, if you look at the screen cap that I took of Starscream, it's like there's a lot of extra shading that they don't typically do. It almost looks like a still from Transformers the movie, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really nice. Now, granted, he doesn't move a lot in this shot, but it's still a great-looking shot. But also about the scene, I love that Starscream didn't even, it didn't occur to him that Megatron's on Earth too, right? Like, Shockwave would be like, what, Megatron's there. He's like, Megatron? And then as he says that, there's this really cute piece of animation where when, he, when you hear him realizing what that means, there's actually a little flash of realization that happens on his eyes. They do like a little reflection that moves across them. Just he says that. I tried screen capping over, but it happened so quickly, I just couldn't do it. But also just it points to this idea of like, well, why was your first thought that it's great that because the Autobot's going to die and not that Megatron's going to die? And I think this might have been one of those little tiny pieces of evidence that in our very earliest phone conversations when we were first friends, I was trying to make a case that actually here's why Starscream's actually the, the most or the greatest Decepticon patriot and not the greatest <laughs> Decepticon traitor. And I think this would have been one of those things I pointed to because, yeah, he thought the sun's going to destroy the Earth. Wonderful. The Autobots are dead. But Megatron, oh, that's right. Also, it's worth watching the scene because when he shoots Shockwave, they do this lovely business where when he falls, they like slow down the movement of his fall. So you like you really feel the weight of Shockwave hitting the ground. So now we're entering the part of the episode where the animation just keeps progressively getting better and better and better. But back on Earth, Prime has the Autobots all looking for the space bridge controls that Shrapnel made off with. Proud detects them underground, and he blows a hole in the dirt to get at them. Now, when you say... Optimus has the Autobots looking for the Space Bridge controls. How are they looking, Hoover? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're all just sort of looking at the ground, but all of their windshields are sh- shining lights on the ground. So I'm guessing those are like some sort of X-ray beams that they all suddenly have somehow. <laughs> I guess. This is weirdness, right? This is the thing I was hinting at earlier. Like when first they can make little tiny guns pop out of them when they're in vehicle mode. But now it's like, keep looking, everybody, and they're... Whatever is their windshield from car mode in their robot mode now turns into flashlights that somehow do some kind of extra scanning. But then there's this cute moment that you said, like, Prowl, you know, detect, detects him. He's like, I found him. And he blows a hole in the dirt to get at them. And then he holds up <laughs> a busted television. And then you hear the Autobots groan. Like, they're like, oh. <laughs> and then as they're groaning, it pans to Megatron, who's watching from afar. And he's actually laughing at them for their failure. <laughs> It's like this odd, this unusual Statler and Waldorf moment with Megatron. (laughs) And as Megatron is laughing at the Autobots from afar, he gets a radio call from a familiar voice. Come in, Megabum! Starscream! 
acknowledge me as the new Decepticon leader, or I shall allow the Earth and you to fall into the sun! You're bluffing, Starscream! Check the thermometer, Megatron. I will rule the universe, even if I am the only one left in the universe! I'll be waiting for your answer, Megatron. That last line is so good and it's so it feels like and i know i felt this as a child it feels like starscream has really turned a corner as a character he's no longer going to come whimpering back to megatron every time or he can't possibly not after this right <laughs> we'll see but also we had to see another shot of starscream sitting down now that may seem silly to say but we rarely see transformers using furniture of any kind <laughs> so when it happens it's worth looking at again because yeah you got to figure out how would starscream sit in a chair well that's how because with those big wings and everything <laughs> so and then also as he hangs up on megatron you got to describe what we see what is megatron <laughs> doing at the camera as he's getting hung up on well he's like shaking his fist at the camera but they do that thing to where they like shrink the image on the tv like it's going away so it's yeah, like the... getting shrunk down to where yeah. it's like receding from the top and bottom of the screen, heading towards the middle. And it's getting wider and wider as it goes. So it looks like Megatron's just getting chunkier and chunkier as they animate it. <laughs> but I do like, he's not even saying anything. He's just like shaking no. his fist as the TV turns off. And yeah, I forgot that that's how TVs looked when they turned off back then, right? <laughs> it would actually, the, the image would get squished and it would turn to a single point of light at the center of the screen. And that single point of light would fade away. It was actually like a, like a full like two-second cooldown to a TV turning off back then. <laughs> but I, I just like the idea of Megatron just doing that. As Starscream's laughing at him and yelling at him, he's just like, oh, you. <laughs> well, Starscream hangs up on Megatron. We cut away to the Combaticons still warring with these holograms. You'd think robots would have sensors that could detect things that worked a little bit better than eyesight alone does. The Combaticons have run out of power, but their winged adversaries are still menacing them. That is, until Swindle happens upon the computer controlling the holograms. And with a flick of a switch, the gargoyles dissipate as Swindle tells them they've all been had. And there's almost a note of respect in his voice when he says it. Gentlemen, <laughs> we've been had, you know. <laughs> It, it's it's the the flash of recognition that they've been tricked and they got to do something about it. But also, like I like that he almost admires that they tricked him, especially <laughs> given that his name is Swindle. We're gonna <laughs> learn more about him in future episodes when it comes to that. So I like that that was that was at least in the performance. I can only guess that Wally Burr asked for it. <laughs> well, cutting back to Earth, we see Megatron approach the space bridge controls with no Autobots in sight now. He notices the front panel chewed off and radios Dirge and Ramjet to find the Insecticons and learn where they took the controls. Back on Cybertron, Starscream daydreams about destroying Megatron when he gets a sudden <laughs> shot in the back from an awakened shockwave. <laughs> you fool! We're partners! I serve only Megatron! Go back to Earth and die with Megatron! As Starscream and Shockwave get into a laser battle, the Combaticons enter and demand they cease fire. Starscream pleads for them not to fire on him, but Brawl tells him that he and Shockwave are now their prisoners. They lock them both in a cell together and we cut back to Earth. We 
We see a farmer try to get some water from a well, but all the water is evaporated due to the increased heat from the ever-approaching sun. His crops even catch fire spontaneously. Thankfully, an Autobot fire engine is here to help matters. No, not Inferno. Our new blue fire engine hotspot. He puts out the fire and doesn't say a word. <laughs> How rude, hotspot. You're supposed to introduce yourself. We cut away. Ah, here's Inferno. He and Red Alert are fighting fires while Blades rescue some humans who are quickly finding everything around them catch fire. Everything we snuff catches fire again. Keep at it, Inferno. So, yeah, as you said, everything happens in this episode. There is so much happening. And I am impressed that when we see Red Alert and Inferno, they actually do talk to each other. They only have, like, mm -hmm. one line. But at least they say something so we can hear their voices one last time. Because I suspect this might be one of the last times. <laughs> we'll find out. But another effect that's kind of coming through with this episode, even though, like I said, this is more of a plotty episode and doesn't really have an aboutness to it as much, it is giving a sense of this is a world that feels lived in, in that you can have Inferno and Red Alert sort of just do a walk-by, and we just mm -hmm. acknowledge that, yes, these are Autobots who have been here for a long time. This is kind of like what we were getting into early in Season 2 when you were really laying out the, hey, where'd they come from clip over and over again because you had to. <laughs> me watching it, like the younger me, I felt like I was walking in on a conversation that was already underway. So mm -hmm. I just took it for granted that, yeah, I don't know who they are, but I guess I'm going to find out who they are. And, and I, I can't remember if I brought this up in those earlier conversations, but I think this had to do also with the fact that when I was first introduced to comics, it was a bunch of Silver Age 1960s DC comics, and I didn't I didn't have access to a comic store. So when I finally started getting more modern comics, like Crisis and Infinite Earths, which was very much like this, where there's this, like a catastrophe happening everywhere, and all these single characters from some forgotten DC series do a walk-on and then walk off again... <laughs> It made me feel like, oh, okay, I'm I'm getting a glimpse of a very, very larger world, but I don't only have some of the information. And I feel like Strauss is kind of capitalizing on that in this episode. Like, now we're so far in that we just have Prowl do a walk online. We can have Red Alert do a walk online. And most of the kids watching this have had some familiarity with these other characters, or at least have seen them in the toy catalogs, right? <laughs> So even though it feels like this is a lot of stuff happening and maybe there's a little bit of cribbing from other stories that is happening in this and maybe it's almost too much happening, it is giving at least me the impression of you are walking into a fully developed world rather than like season one where it's a world that's beginning to develop in terms of rolling out the Insecticons, not rolling out the Constructicons, rolling out the Dinobots, etc. Right? Yeah. We cut away to a parking garage in the city where we see the Insecticons burst through a wall Kool-Aid man-style. They think they've finally lost the Autobots and are going to take time out for a meal. Kickback rips some metal off a car's hood and takes a bite. But then Ramjet flies in from outside, having found the Insecticons. Megatron then runs in after him, demanding the control panel to the space bridge. And these shots are so good, Hoover. Like when Ramjet flies in and he says, I found them, he does this really cool dynamic transformation and lands on the ground all hard, then like immediately flips to his side so he can like stand at attention as Megatron runs up. <laughs> it looks really good. There's just so many screen capable moments in this episode. Well, then the Autobots pull up as well, and Spike exits, noticing something in Shrapnel's hands. Oh no! There's the control panel! But the Insecticons have chewed it up! Here we are at our second commercial break. 
I just ask that you be gentle with me this time, Hoover. <laughs> just like if you want me to spend money, you know, don't don't mess with me. So what what, what are we gonna buy this time? Well, put away your fears. Okay. This time we're gonna fill the need of filling your stomach. Oh. Since the Insecticons are eating all the time, that's making me hungry. So we're getting inundated with food commercials. Like this one for Hardee's, where our good people go for good food. When the race is won, Catch this deal at Hardee's. A tempting fisherman's filet sandwich, regular fries, and a medium soft drink. All for just $1.99. Hardee's. No bad people, please. And also, you may have noticed in the jingle or the song that they sing in this commercial, only winners get to go to Hardee's. <laughs> yeah, the kid wins the, the swim meet, so she gets to get the nice fish sandwich. All you other kids, oh, nothing but crumbs for you. <laughs> because, the sign on the door, wait, are you a winner? Are you a good person? <laughs> then you can enter. Man, so so now we're seeing you know the hard edge of meritocracy at work. <laughs> Or maybe we'll just stay at home. Maybe we're not winners. Maybe we can't get allowed into Hardee's. Maybe we'll just stay home and have a snack, like maybe some peanut butter boppers. Peanut butter boppers. It's creamy peanut butter, a crispy coating, and a whole lot more. Peanut butter boppers. Now with two new cookie coatings, Fudge Graham and Chocolatey Cookie Crunch. What a snack. Well, you know, the way to activate my appetite is to play muffled trumpet music and have slide whistle noises happening constantly. <laughs> and am, am I mistaken, or is that literally just a tube of peanut butter with chocolate chips and graham cracker stuff wrapped around it? It's, it's ingenious like, is what it is. I'm amazed that I don't remember ever eating those as a kid. I have no memory of peanut butter poppers, but yeah, it, it just it looks like it's like, well, have you ever thought about diabetes? You, you think it might be part of a lifestyle for you? Here. This was the '80s. <laughs> Diabetes wasn't invented yet. That's true. Or at least we didn't care about it back then. <laughs> oh my goodness, peanut butter boppers. thats dangerous. Or how about some giggles cookies with two kinds of cream in each one? <laughs> I can't believe how good this is. New giggles cookies: two kinds of cream in each funny face. Are you gonna eat that? I know I remember this commercial first of all and I remember just despising that ch that chuckling <laughs> child in this episode because the, the laugh sounds so forced <laughs> but watching it as an adult and after 60 episodes of doing this podcast with you I know the reason you chose it was because you're not so discreetly trying to point out the dynamic of this podcast through this commercial <laughs> right that's what's actually happening here. <laughs> You're just laughing uncontrollably, and I'm trying to keep us on task. That... Yeah, that's exactly it. And you're trying to point out what the real value is. Like, don't don't get hung up on the silliness of this thing. It's got silly faces. I know, but look, it's got chocolate inside. There's <laughs> chocolate inside, everybody. And the darkness is what makes it good, not the silly faces. <laughs> well, I had completely forgotten about those cookies' existence, but seeing this, I looked at some other giggles commercials as well and i remembered them finally so it's like yeah. it was just like a walk down memory lane of memories <laughs> i had completely forgotten about 
Oh, and the, the way the kid's got his head on the table at the end, he's like slapping the table. It just reminded me of like two or two or three episodes ago where you said that the rock lords lied to you, and I completely <laughs> fell apart. <laughs> oh, so I guess I got to get the Giggles cookies. I'm going to say no to the peanut butter boppers because my body is a temple. I mean, I will eat smiling cookies, <laughs> but man, not putting a, a tube of peanut butter in me. And, I, and Hardy said no to you, so... Oh, well, absolutely. I never won a sporting event in my life. So, yeah, I, I, they, would, they would not only not let me in, they would push me down just to remind me why I don't deserve to be in there. So, But at least I got a box of Giggles cookies so I, I can laugh along with the silly faces. And I'm ready to watch the rest of this episode, Hoover. We come back and the three Insecticons don't like the look of things with the Autobots and Decepticons teamed up before them. So Shrapnel tosses the control panel, and the three burrow back down into the ground. Now, this is the most burrowing in this episode mm-hmm. we have ever seen the Insecticons do. Yeah. It, they're acting like that's just a staple of what the Insecticons do, but I think we might have seen it once, if that. <laughs> Maybe. And we we surmised that they did it when they showed their home in some early episodes of the Insecticons. Mm-hmm. There were all these tunnels everywhere, so we... I guess they dug those, but yes, they never showed that as like a common tactic. <laughs> so, but it's it's happening quite a bit, like you said. And also, can I just say this business with shrapnel and the control panel is a little confusing to me, mm-hmm. just because when he took it, it's because Megatron said, and I believe the exact line was, "Shrapnel, keep them away from the space bridge controls." And then so shrapnel's like, "Okay," and then he takes the control <laughs> panel, runs away with it, and yeah. then Megatron comes back to the space bridge, just like. So that's what the Autobots were after. They were looking for the control panel. So apparently he didn't see that happen. So now Megatron's mm. like, give it back to me. And he's like, but you told me to keep away from the Autobots. That's what I was doing. I'm playing keep away. Right. So I feel like a line got lost someplace. But either way, we, we had the MacGuffin to chase for, through this episode. The thing <laughs> they need in order to get to Cybertron. Well, Perceptor picks up the panel and he deems it repairable, though he'll need an entire laundry list of parts to replace the broken pieces. Well, anybody have any spare parts on him? I will donate some of the needed parts from my own components, Perceptor, if Megatron agrees to do the same. Never! I am autonomic perfection! You'll be evaporated perfection if we don't get to Cybertron and stop Starscream! Ah, sick burn, Spike. Uh, don't don't take this away from me. <laughs> this is all I get. <laughs> Spike has done so little in this episode. At least I got to see him once again look Megatron in the eye and tell him what for. <sighs> I, I I feel like this is I'm gonna get less and less of this, aren't I? As the series goes on. <laughs> Enjoy him while you got him. Mm-hmm. So Megatron resigns himself to allowing Perceptor to remove some of the components, but make sure that Ramjet watches over him. Ramjet, if this Autobot quack does anything suspicious, shatter his lenses from the inside. And Ramjet retorts, I do not know how to shatter lenses from inside. (laughs) No, he doesn't. But I bet he totally didn't get what Megatron asked of him. (laughs) But he knows better than to say anything. He just, like, keeps a straight face. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just keeps on staring straight ahead. (laughs) And this is like, I'll just stand by you, and I guess you want me to do something. I don't know. I hope I figure it out. (laughs) So Perceptor opens up Prime and Megatron's chest cavities and gets to work. 
We cut away to Protectobot helicopter blades seemingly spraying coolant on the ground. I don't think it works that way. But he's getting low and retorts. What am I going to do? I can't cool the whole planet. Protectobot's groove, the motorcycle, and streetwise, the police car, bringing humans to a meat freezer. Won't that freeze in here? No way! The temperature keeps climbing too fast outside. They'll be fine, at least till the ice melts. So Groove is also played by Frank Welker, just as Blades is. And Streetwise, as I said earlier, is Peter Cullen. A very different sounding Peter Cullen than we're used to. We cut away to the Space Bridge, where the Autobot Decepticon Alliance is here to reinstall the Space Bridge controls. Megatron tries to get Ramjet to beam them up, but Prime's not letting the Decepticons go alone. So both teams enter the big purple donut as Perceptor works the controls. Getting beamed up are Prime, Sideswipe, Sunstreaker, Prowl, Megatron, Skywarp, Thundercracker, and Ramjet. Perceptor is uncertain it will work, but he fires up the space bridge and off they go. And I do love that Perceptor waited for them to all be in the space bridge ready to send, and then he just says... <laughs> Almost as if he's trying to say it out of earshot. He's like, I don't even know if this is going to work. Now <laughs> first goes, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that needed to be there. <laughs> well, they fly up into the air and into space they go and they exit the space bridge elevator on Cybertron and immediately they're on the hunt for Starscream. A plaintive wail is heard in a familiar voice and everyone finds Shockwave and Starscream locked up behind bars. It was the Combaticons! They locked us in here, and they forced me to threaten you, Megatron! Believe me! He is lying! And I just love how quickly and happily Shockwave rats Starscream out. <laughs> He's lying, Megatron! You know how he is! He's a child who said it last time when I was there when you invited me to Earth. Remember? Because you like me and you don't like him. <laughs> You know, you're, the the dynamic you're describing here is actually, I feel like Transformers Prime really fleshed that out a lot more mm. clearly. And it's like they were mm -hmm. taking notes from you. Because that is the relationship between Starscream and Shockwave in Prime. <laughs> well, Megatron explains that Starscream is going to do everything he says and deactivate the device moving the Earth into the sun. Starscream decides maybe he can get something in return, so he asks Megatron to relinquish leadership in exchange. Megatron says, don't be a fool. Starscream says, well, let the Earth burn then. But suddenly a blast from across the room separates them. It's Brawl explaining that Starscream is their prisoner, but the combined forces chase Brawl and Swindle out of the building. A big laser fight unfolds with the combined Autobots and Decepticons against the Combaticons. So that scene where they're all running together out the door. So you have the Decepticons, the Autobots, and the Bubblehead drones all running together as a force out the, the blasted hole in the wall. And it looks terrific. And then you get this slow pan from right to left as we see the Combaticons down the way, almost on the horizon line, shooting all sorts of lasers towards us. And as we pan left, we see the Bubbleheaded Robots, Megatron, Optimus, everybody shooting back at them. So it's, it's boring shooting at each other across an alleyway kind of fight, but at least it's staged really well. It looks terrific. And I got to say, it, I wonder if it's worth pausing here and talking about how appealing the heroes and villains teaming up against a worse villain kind of story is, mm -hmm. right? It is a trope I do love in stories, especially when done by something like Sunbow. It's like, oh, 
Zartan's got the piece of the Weather Dominator or whatever the MacGuffin was at that point, and Cobra mm-hmm. and Joe have to team up to get it from him. Yeah, or, well, yeah, the Game Master was that, that mm-hmm. very story, right? One of the very yeah. best episodes is mm-hmm. about a worse villain showing up or somehow a more powerful villain showing up, right? I don't know how many listeners here are fans of Lupin the Third, the comics or the films or the episodic cartoons, but that, that is a trope that they go to a lot. Is like Lupin's on a heist, Xenagata's trying to catch <laughs> Lupin before he does the heist, and then through the heist, Lupin discovers a more sinister villain or conspiracy of some sort, and then he and Xenagata have to team up to stop this even worse villain. And even though I know it's going to happen every time, it's just delightful. It is so <laughs> charming to watch people who really hate each other <laughs> for very good reasons have to work together. And actually, if I were to get a little bit philosophical about it, I just feel like this is as silly as this kind of story can be. It does point to something where it's like, hey, you know what? We actually need each other more than we hate each other. And maybe we should find ways to work together because otherwise, if we're divided, then people like the Combaticons can make things much worse for us. You know, <laughs> this whole bit, this whole scene coming up is just animated beautifully. And it's one of the better battle scenes than what we've seen in most of season two. So this is another one where it's worth looking up from your, your phone and look at the screen. <laughs> one other oddity I'd like to point out is that after Bruticus defeated the Bubblehead drones earlier, they gathered them all up. Mm-hmm. Like they put them on the back of Onslaught in his carrier mode. Mm-hmm. And I thought they were going to factor in again somehow, like they were reprogramming to be on their side or something. <laughs> but <laughs> they don't. I mean, they're not on like... the Combaticon side. They're fighting with the Decepticons. So either so... these are new drones and Onslaught is just tidy. <laughs> yeah. That is, it's like, is that the point of things? Or do the Combaticons just like to clean up after their messes? <laughs> I love that idea. Is that Onslaught is such such a he's so Type A right that that he's like well we're victorious but we can't leave this mess here we're gonna rule Cybertron <laughs> it's going to be a tidy Cybertron time to lean time to clean gentlemen oh not again <laughs> another thought that just occurred to me is another reason that I think this one feels like Starscream's turning a corner as a villain is he's so ready to rapidly flip the coin on what card he's going to play. I'm mixing my metaphors mm-hmm. here, but right. But he's like, please, Megatron, you got to believe me. I, I wasn't involved in this. And then Shock was like, he's lying. And then Strike was like, well, then I guess I'm going to go back to being a jerk again and say, I'll only help you if you let me be the leader of the Decepticons. Then when Megatron says no, he's like, then let the earth burn. But he, even when the Combaticons attacked him earlier, he's like, please, you can't hurt me. I'm your creator. And they're like, <laughs> no, you're a prisoner now. Well, fine, then I'll shoot you. No, we'll shoot you. Right. <laughs> So it seems like he's out of habit going back to his groveling, pitiful mode. In the moment he smells that there's no sense in using the tactic, he's ready to just drop it and go full on to the really aggressive, sort of maniacal, greedy child villain. (laughs) So I I remember as a kid feeling that in some way or another, feeling like this, this is Starscream pushing farther in one direction than the other. And I wonder what's going to come out of that in this one. So anyway, lots to consider in terms of potential character growth that may or may not pay off in this one. <laughs> <laughs> so during the big battle, at one point we see Prime wielding two guns at once against the Combaticons. 
Mm. We see Vortex and Blastoff crash into one another and plummet towards the ground. We see Megatron take the other three Combaticons out with a laser blast each, one after another. <laughs> and then the three are actually able to get up after that blast from Megatron, but immediately Vortex and Blastoff fall on top of them. There's a Steve Martin reference in this bit here, too, where Blastoff accidentally knocks Swindle over. So they're getting like a little bit discoordinated, and then Swindle yells at Blastoff, and he does this, well, excuse me, which also gets used in a future Transformers episode. Well, excuse me! And I feel like that one is dated enough, where that was really, I think, at its zenith in, I want to say, like, 1979. So the fact <laughs> it's going to use it in, like, a 1985 cartoon feels like, okay... I guess memes hung around longer back then. <laughs> but I just, the reason I bring it up is I don't expect a lot of younger listeners to know where that came from. But then also, like, this whole scene that you just described is like things get like super anime looking. Like, look at that shot of Optimus during this scene, right? Mm -hmm. It looks like it's from a Japanese import cartoon, not mm -hmm. something that was sent over to Japan or Korea to get animated the way, like with the black shadows on Optimus and all like the little grubby details showing the damage on him and everything. And then, yes, we cannot proceed without reflecting on the animated scene of Megatron firing on three of the Combaticons <laughs> and taking them out one at a time. Look at now, that. I timed how... it. It's like each blast like takes a second. Yeah. So he like shoots one of them and the other two just react. <laughs> shoots another one of them and Swindle is still reacting and then he shoots yeah. Swindle. So for some supposed combat experts, not very good at running away. Yeah, they're they're failing here. Well, I, I think the point that they're trying to make here is that they're overwhelmed, right? They have more people than they can deal with at this moment is making them kind of like forget their military training. And realizing they're not accomplishing anything individually, they now know it's time to form Bruticus. Optimus realizes that they've altered the space bridge, and that's what's responsible for moving the Earth towards the sun. But before they can deal with that, they first have to deal with Bruticus. They're trying to determine how to stop the giant combiner when Starscream pipes up, saying there is a way to stop him. Help us preserve the Earth, and I might preserve you. I thought he might rebel, so I made sure to build in a failsafe mechanism. There are three spots on his back. Hit them all, and he's deactivated. Megatron shoots at the giant, but can't get to his back. Bruticus picks Megatron up. He banished me! I do not like being banished! We were imprisoned here on Cybertron for millions of years. And now I will have my revenge. As Bruticus shakes Megatron like a ragdoll, Prime gets behind Bruticus and shoots the three Achilles back acne on Bruticus. <laughs> Instantly, the Combiner stumbles and falls to the ground, seemingly paralyzed, saying he can't move. Prime lowers his gun to Bruticus's head as Sideswipe dashes into the Space Bridge Operations computer. Yeah, you say Optimus puts his gun to Bruticus's head, and I, presumably to say, <laughs> don't move, Optimus, I'm watching you. Spike's not here, so I have to be the one side-eyeing you. But when you look at that shot, holy moly, our 
Combiner's big sometimes because Bridicus's <laughs> head is bigger than Optimus in this shot. Uh, and I know they play it fast and loose with this. The combiners change size all the time, but man, mm -hmm. he's gigantic and his torso is onslaught. So wow, how how much how much they mass shift? Sideswipe gets on the computer that's sending the Earth into the sun and manages to reprogram it so the Earth moves away from the sun. So for now, the Earth is safe. I remember really getting a kick out of the scene when I was a kid, too, because it, when he gets on the computer, the computer just puts up the words, change of direction, question mark, and then you hear <laughs> Sideswipe panically, like, yes, yes, and he's, like, tapping the keys frantically. <laughs> that always I found to be super cute. Listening to any, any Autobot who thinks he's a cool dude not be a cool dude for a second is great. <laughs> but also, I want to point back at my anecdote that I know I've shared on the show that one morning when I was getting ready for school, and my mom said, well, when you go outside, you're going to be able to see Venus in the sky, and you know what I was picturing, being, <laughs> you know, nine, ten years old. I thought I was going to see the planet Venus instead of that little prick of light. And so, but it points to, like, that, that perception that kids have and how the storytellers are, I think, intentionally trying to speak to that in the sense of, like, what's a kid's perception of the scale of the solar system, right? In reality, it's like little grains of dust, you know, floating mm -hmm. around this semi-larger semi grain of dust. You can find videos on YouTube that explain, like, the scale of the solar system in a way that's meaningful. They put a marble on the ground, and then it shows them with, like, mm -hmm. a drone helicopter going back, like, 12 blocks to be like, okay, there's the orbit of Mercury, right? <laughs> but in the picture that Sideswipe sees, like, Earth is, like, maybe 2,000 miles away from the sun, right? <laughs> and the sun is, like, not even close to the scale it would be. The sun's, like, maybe, like, five times the size of Earth instead of, how many Earths would fit inside the sun? John Linnell, can you tell me? The sun is large. If the sun were hollow, a million Earths could fit inside. And yet, the sun is only a middle-sized star. But also, at that range, the Earth would have no atmosphere anymore. <laughs> the seas would have boiled away, right? And probably it'd be molten at this point, but okay, whatever. We need to see this in a way that a kid perceives it. So we're all just like, oh yeah, if we were that close, it'd probably be like 100 degrees that day. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I love that. This is the kind of storytelling for young people that I really, really enjoy when they when they play it fast and loose with the way it really is. And then that old, older relative of ours was like, that wouldn't even be right. And we're like, but I just saw it. It's, it's, it was there. It was real, right? It's, you break the poetry when you say, that wouldn't even be right. So anyway, Sideswipe saves everyone on Earth. Way to go, Sideswipe. And now with that matter handled, it's time to move on to the second most pressing problem. Megatron, Bruticus is a hazard to the galaxy. Yours and ours. I agree. We must destroy him. Wow, Megatron and Prime on the same page? We see Ramjet and Starscream lower tow cables as they fly over Bruticus. They pick up the giant and pull him into the air. Megatron says goodbye as he fires one blast into the dead center of Bruticus, and we see Bruticus literally explode. Into little tiny pieces. Time passes and the Autobots are heading home, leaving the Decepticons behind. I still don't trust Megatron. Yeah, why did he just let us leave to rejoin our friends on Earth without even a blast for goodbye? Uh, the first voice is Prowl played by Michael Bell. The second voice is Sideswipe, usually played by Michael Bell, but here is Corey Burton trying to do his best Sideswipe. I guess they just forgot to record the line initially. 
That's weird. Obviously, he was just here for the line just before it. <laughs> yeah. But I wonder if maybe the actors who play multiple characters recorded all of one character's lines, and then they went back through the script and recorded the, their next character's lines rather than have to go back and forth. It's probably easier to stay in character that way. But I don't know how they did it, and I don't know why we have Corey Burton doing it here. The only unless... thing I could figure out... Yeah, that maybe they were doing. He was doing Sunstreaker. They 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 messed up in like an earlier draft of the script or something, and it said Sunstreaker's mm. name there. And then they animated the side swipe to it. I don't know because yeah, it, be. it it sounds it's it's a, like a little bit of a whinier version of Sunstreaker's voice, mm. but like yeah, it's it's super weird. It, it was one of those moments too. Like yes, even as a child, I was like why did Sideswipe just sound like that? That's weird because I just saw him talking a second ago and he sounded like <laughs> Sideswipe. <laughs> Well, as the Autobots take the space bridge home, Prime admits that if it weren't for Megatron's help in saving the Earth, they'd have no friends left on the Earth. And then we cut away to Megatron and Starscream, who reveal that Bruticus isn't dead at all. They use the hologram machine to make it look like they destroyed him, but here he is lying on the ground in one piece. Clever. You have redeemed yourself, Starscream. Your plan worked, and Bruticus is ours. You may return to Earth as my subordinate. Thank you for sparing me, Megatron. Once we finish reprogramming Bruticus to obey only me, he will be unstoppable! And with that twist, we end the episode. And I have to admit that that's a pretty good way to put back all the toys back in the box. Hmm. Starscream gets back in Megatron's good graces by coming up with the plan to take out Bruticus and by using the hologram generator to make the Autobots think he's destroyed. And it's things like this that are reasons why Megatron keeps Starscream around. Starscream concocted this whole scheme to fool the Autobots. No other Decepticon on the team, of course, <laughs> maybe Onslaught and his little guys, yeah. are going to come up with a plan like this. Thundercracker would never come up with a plan like this. <laughs> Skywarp would never come up with a plan like this. Yeah, So true. Megatron needs Starscream because no one else can come up with these schemes. Starscream is a schemer. That's what he does. Mm -hmm. Everyone else just points lasers, and that's about as technical as they get. But I feel like you hear in Megatron's voice how pleased he is that Starscream came up with this. You know, Megatron, he's not used to hearing good ideas from the other Decepticons. <laughs> and this got Prime off Megatron's back and also gave Megatron an extra combiner team that's going to be reprogrammed to serve him. And Starscream knows he's lucky to have even come through all this alive, so I would imagine he'll be on his best behavior for a while. So it's all wins for Megatron here. And as far as this episode goes, it's a good episode and I dig it, but it really feels like a greatest hits album because it really just takes ideas and concepts from a handful of past episodes and smooshes them all together, Plato style. And the Earth being melted by the sun, the Insecticons eating everything and causing the Autobots and Decepticons to team up against them, even Megatron using a machine to make Energon cubes out of the fool Insecticons, and characters randomly calling for help from characters that we've never met. We've seen all of this before. It feels like this is too much plot for one episode, but I think that's because each subplot was lifted from an existing episode. So you had, rather than one plot, you had like six one-fourths of a plot. 
and you ended up with too much. <laughs> <laughs> but though it was a bit full, I think it's still a good watch. But it's not perfect. Hotspot, the fire engine leader of the protective pods, didn't say a word, and neither did the ambulance first aid. And that's disappointing, especially because this is becoming a trend, with characters being introduced and having no lines. Points off for that. We only have three episodes of season two left. Are we going to have enough room for these new characters to get more development? And speaking of characters, I'm afraid we have to say goodbye to a few yet again. <sighs> we did get Sunstreaker and Shockwave in this episode. And except for small cameos in the movie, this is going to be it for them. Wow. We saw Red Alert briefly in this one. And this is it for him. This is the end. Goodbye, Red Alert. So farewell. Your paranoia and jumping to erroneous conclusions will be missed. So this is another Decepticon-heavy episode, about three in a row. So you being the Autobot fan, how did you like this episode? Uh, there's there's a lot to like in this one, but I agree with all of your critiques in terms of it being a little bit plot-heavy. It feels like, you know, it as I'm thinking about it, it it's reminding me a lot of some of the early G.I. Joe miniseries, where you're really bouncing around to a lot of different locations and getting sort of mm -hmm. like short bits of progression through each different plot thread. Right. Yeah. So like in the revenge of Cobra, you've got the bit with storm shadow and spirit in, trapped in the cave. And then you've got the bit with Flint lady J and shipwreck inside of that weird temple with giant stone robot creature thing. And you only get like, they'll, they'll literally do like 60 seconds of animation, just keeping up to date on what that part of the story is. So it feels like it's trying to do that, but in one episode, and, and I'm also reminded of the RoboForce cartoon special, which <laughs> I, which I, it featured a lot of Sunbow actors if it wasn't actually produced by Sunbow. I can't remember. But that also felt like that. Like this, like you're trying to do a miniseries in 20 minutes, and that that's going to feel very rushed. And like you said, we get introduced to the Protectobots, and we only hear a couple of them talk. We really don't know anything about who they are as people, Right. There's only one scene with them in robot mode. Yeah. it's. I, I think the reason that we probably didn't revisit it very much is that it's not terribly memorable in terms of getting to really dwell on any particular character that we really love. Mm. The thing that stands out, the star of the episode is the Combaticons, pure and simple, because they are hinting at a future for the Decepticon army that we're never going to get. But it's intriguing and very tempting to think about it, where... Mm. You watch these characters who really operate as a team. They have mutual respect. The leader is hands-on. He is not punishing. He's he definitely has his, his flaws. He's arrogant, right? But he's he's not he doesn't have as broken a worldview as Megatron. If Megatron is a totalitarian leader, Onslaught is kind of like a military dictator, right? So it's intriguing that it points towards something that could have been because what's going to happen next, and I'm, I don't think this is going to spoil very much, but when we get into season three, the Decepticons are definitely on their heels. It starts mm -hmm. off with, with the Autobots sort of being the overpowered faction in the story. And it's an, it's an interesting place to go, but and, and, and I feel like it's almost an inevitable place to go given Megatron's recruitment strategies. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then even the fact that he says we're going to reprogram Bruticus and the Combaticons so they obey only me. 
Well, now you're taking away what made the Combaticons so effective in the first place, because now you're taking away their, their will, right? By turning them yeah, into... Yeah, and we don't really know how deep that goes. I mean, we've seen it before with the Robo Smasher, mm-hmm. but we don't know, like, how much of their personality that removes. I mean, the Constructicons definitely have personality. Mm-hmm. So there'll be some personality left, but we don't know the details about how yeah. it affects what they think and how they act. True. As with so many things in this podcast, it's mostly conjecture, right? Yeah. <laughs> but so I guess, you know, the thing I always get excited about is like, what is what are the writers promising me with this? Like, what promise are they pointing to? What, what hints at future growth or future development are they kind of aiming at? And I don't necessarily need it all to be paid off. But I feel like this was a very, very short trip around an idea of what would alternate Decepticon leadership look like? What would a third faction look like? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a bummer that we're not going to get it. Although, you know, like you said, they put everything back in the box with this ending and they did it in a, in a fairly tidy way. I'm not trying to say one episode's better than the other, but I, what I do think is interesting in the, the buffet that you get at the Sunbow Transformers cartoon table <laughs> is, are you into silly, off-the-rails plots that are appropriate to the developmental worldview of an 11-year-old, but really focusing on lore building, battles, cartoony political intrigue in fighting amongst characters. Transformers has a lot of that for you in episodes like this. Are you into thoughtful character exploration that is suited to what a child would be going through at that stage of their life? It's got that for you too. That's what sea change is. That's what the Golden Lagoon is. Golden Lagoon would probably be someplace in between those two if I were to start charting this, which I'm not going to do. But what I will say is this episode is another good example of something we've kind of talked about almost ad nauseum on this podcast is that one of the features of Sunbow cartoons that gets us both excited is how they can deliver a lot of character in a very little bit of time. And I'm pleased with the fact that at least in this episode, they gave enough space for the Combaticons to say a few words. Everybody said something. Mm-hmm. So we know where they stand and what they're essentially about. Yeah. So even though the episode doesn't have like a big aboutness to it, at least we got to really understand why these characters are cool, and it gave us a jumping-off point to imagine further adventures, which was largely the function of the show because it made us want to buy those toys. I know I wanted Bruticus when I was a kid, and I know I know <laughs> how you feel about Bruticus. So, and there's probably not room here so to go into your Bruticus fanfic, but maybe that'll <laughs> be in the the, the season two wrap up when we talk about all the characters, right? <laughs> So, and then also, I, I feel like the, the Protectobots, I, I have a lot of fondness for the Protectobots, and I have to, it must be from a future episode, because we didn't learn anything <laughs> about it. Because I remember feeling as a kid, like, oh, they were the arch enemy of the Combaticons, and what a cool dichotomy to set up with, we're the military people, well, we're the protecting people, right? Mm-hmm. That must happen later. Maybe it's happening in one of the last three episodes that I don't remember, but. Well, we'll get to it. Hmm. But next up, next on the agenda is Aerial Assault. That mm. is season two, episode 48 on Tubi. You have to go back a little bit. Season two, episode 48, and the title suggests that we're going to spend some more time with the Aerial Bots. Believe so. And maybe we'll finally learn what all their names are, <laughs> the differences between them. <laughs> or are we just going to hang out with Slingshot for a long time? I think we're probably going to hang out with Slingshot for a long time. <laughs> we'll find out next week. So, okay. 
Uh, well, everybody go watch it and then come back and let's talk about it together on this project we call Four Billion Years Later. Now, if you want to spray coolant all over the world to stop climate change, a great way you could do that is by giving us a five-star review wherever you listen to us. That helps more people find the show. That sends a signal into the internet computer world to say, like, this thing matters. Tell more people about it. And if you want to sanction murder like Optimus Prime did in this one by saying, Megatron, this guy's too dangerous. Let's murder him together. You could write a <laughs> review of the podcast and, and say, there's a few things that I like about what Jersey says. There's a few things I like about what Hoover says. And there's a few things I like about Transformers. Just a couple sentences. I know your time is valuable. I respect it, and I appreciate it. We both do when you take a few minutes to write a few thoughts about what makes this show valuable to you that helps more people find it as well. So, Hoover, is there anything else that we can ask of the listeners now that they've experienced and enjoyed our thoughtful analysis of this, this cartoon? Visit our TeePublic store at tpublic.com slash user slash four million years later. And you might see something new. Just saying, go have a look. Maybe you will. What? A new thing. All right. Well, thank you, Hoover. We do this show weekly. It drops on Thursdays at 4millionyearslater.com and in podcatchers everywhere. We'll see you next time. Until then, I have been Jersey Drozd of 4millionyearslater.com and rss.jdrozd.com for everything that I do. And I've been Hoover. Okay, bye. Goodbye. Episode synopses are from imdb.com and some episode information taken from tfwiki.net. The closing theme is by Nick Mahalik, based on the original closing theme by Ford Kinder and Ann Bryant. You can find more of Nick's music at soundcloud.com slash nicholas-mahalik. That's spelled N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S dash M-E-H-A-L-I-C-K. Find us on Facebook under 4 Million Years Later, and you can email us at 4millionyearslater at gmail.com. Visit 4millionyearslater.com, and if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. You know how it works. <laughs>